0: A few years ago, I watched a movie called Wakefield. I referred to this movie in a sermon back then a few years ago and because it struck me as a kind of a parable for modern life, at least the modern lives that so many of us in this kind of a community here are living. And it still does strike me as a good parable for our lives. The film Wakefield is actually a sort of an up-to-date modern adaptation of a short story by the great 19th century American author Nathaniel Hawthorne. And what the story is about, what it's really about, is the the strange experience that a lot of us have. Some of us have it as a persistent reality. Others of us may move in and out of this kind of experience. But the the chasm between knowing that we are living and yet not being fully alive. The experience of knowing that we're not actually inhabiting the life that we want and the life that we intuit was meant for us. That's what it's about. So the main character, Howard Wakefield, is by the way, he's played brilliantly, I think, by Bryan Cranston. Uh, and, and so we're introduced to him at the beginning of the film. First minutes, we see a middle-aged white man in a well-paying professional career. He is an attorney, and he is unfulfilled in his job. We see that he has a, an attractive younger wife and two lovely daughters, but he is strangely discontented in these relationships. We see that he has a beautiful, spacious, and well-manicured home in the suburbs, but he is deeply disenchanted with it all. Again, I think a modern parable uh, for so many in a community like this one. Wakefield possesses almost everything that the world defines as success, yet he is actually very alienated from that world. And I I know this is a pretty common theme in modern art, and yes, I know it is a very common theme in a lot of my preaching. I get that. So at the end of another profitable but meaningless business day, Wakefield leaves his tall skyscraper in Manhattan. We see him walking down a crowded sidewalk, trudging, really. He catches his train at Grand Central Station, out to the suburbs, and sits vacantly there in his seat on the way home. And then this is when it gets really interesting. When he gets home, for reasons that he does not understand in himself, he cannot make himself go in the front door. He cannot make himself anymore go into the home. And he does a really weird thing. He decides to go up into the un. Finished, unfurnished attic over the detached garage and just hang out up there for the night. And he goes up there, and he looks through the attic window into his home and sees his wife and his children going about their evening business. And then the next day comes. And again, without any premeditation, oddly, he decides to, to stay up there. He spends another day in the garage attic. And he observes into his house as he looks through the window the wife's growing alarm at his absence. The police are called. Presumably a missing persons bulletin is uh, put out there. Um, and he wonders how his family is going to respond to his growing absence, his disappearance. And then days turn into weeks, turn into months. He stays in the attic, except at night. Wakefield sneaks out to forage for nutrition, for food, in garbage dumpsters. He's fixated on when his wife is going to start wanting to date other men. He's looking for that. And he descends into self-pity over time as he begins to discern that his wife and children are kind of beginning to live life more normally, getting used to the fact that probably he's dead. Hiding all this time in the attic, spying on his family day after day, Wakefield's hair grows out, his hygiene deteriorates, and his mind begins to fray. That is, that is to say, the longer Wakefield chooses not to inhabit his life in the home where he's meant to be, the less human, the less human he becomes. How does the movie end? I'm not going to ruin it for you. You have to see it for yourself. (laughs) But as I said, it's a movie that made me think. And I wondered, again, I'll say this, if it serves as a kind of allegory for what many of us in this community experience as well. A disconnect, a disconnect. We have this good life that we've worked so hard to construct. And then for all of that, there seems to be something that's not connected to the life we yearn for. Being fully connected. Alive, In terms of the Christian faith, we may be like Wakefield living on his house property but not in the home for some reason. Being alive but not fully alive in Christ. So I guess these... Uh, Pastoral musings of mine may uh, seem disproportionately small compared to the magnitude of our first scripture reading today, and I know I've taken a meandering path to get to that. Um, The Exodus story, uh, it is a story that should be so deeply ingrained in our biblical imaginations that it requires no lengthy and pedantic retelling. As you know, it is the story of Israel's miraculous deliverance out of their long, long history of slavery in Egypt. They flee Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army and they find themselves hemmed in by the Red Sea. God parts the waters of the Red Sea so that the Israelites can pass over toward the Promised Land on dry ground and then subsequently engulfs the pursuing Egyptian army. Obviously, obviously, this story is utterly central to the Hebrew Scriptures. It is utterly central to the New Testament as well. In Christian self-understanding, the parting of the Red Sea uh, is the earliest paradigm uh, foretelling Christ's resurrection. The parting of the Red Sea is a metaphor for Christian baptism, as you know. We go down into the water and through the water and come out and up, freed, liberated in Jesus. And yet I want to suggest that there may be some details in this story, even beyond that, that warrant some further consideration. So I think it's a mistake, and I, I say this with a little hesitation actually, uh, but I think it may be a mistake to, to think of Israel's time in Egypt as one of ceaseless um, uh, misery and violence, Because, in fact, one of the reasons that the persecution of them in Egypt begins to intensify is that they're not simply surviving. They're actually thriving in their uh, subjugated state there. Their numbers are growing. Materially, they're doing okay. They have food. They have provision. In fact, we know this because when that's taken away, once they're liberated from slavery, there are no no guarantees, that's going to just be a gift of God rather than something handed to them from their slave masters. They, They miss it. They miss it when they don't actually have that. But like our own cultural context maybe today, their cultural situation is where they were uh, competing with lots of false gods. They were in a land of a different language, a different, different descriptors for reality. They weren't, even, they weren't in the place where God had called them to be. And it was very difficult for them to live together in community as God's people in that environment, needless to say. And that was their real slavery. That was the The real slavery was they could not fulfill their destiny and their identity as God's people living like all of that. And yet they were trapped. They were trapped unless God did something. So I want to suggest that Egypt is to Israel like the attic over the garage is to Wakefield's home. There is life, but there's no real flourishing And so today we get this harrowing scene with the Egyptians thundering down on the Israelites, trapped as they are there on the edge of the Red Sea. They cannot escape. They face imminent destruction. And here is where I want you to notice two things. First, the people themselves of Israel are done for. They have no power in themselves to rescue themselves they have no resources ultimately to be the agents of their own liberation their own freedom they cannot achieve their own victory this is going to be god's doing this is god's miracle not israel's miracle so moses tells the people in the verses just prior to what you heard today don't be afraid the Lord will fight for you because you have no capacity to achieve victory here. What you need to do is to stop. Just stop trying to do it on your own. Yes, I know the Egyptians are coming. Yes, I know there's water there. But God wants me to tell you to stop, stand firm, and pay attention to what God is about to do. This is hardly a call to passivity, by the way, These are actually a call to attentiveness, to honesty, to confession. We don't have it in us, no matter how hard we work and achieve or how successful we are, to gain our own liberation, to part our own Red Sea waters. So what if it is the case that the Bible teaches us that the healthiest place you can actually end up, contrary to what you may think and the pressures you may feel, actually, a healthy place, if not the healthiest place you can end up, is in the place where you come to stand with the Israelites on the edge of the Red Sea as the Egyptian army approaches. And you know, I am helpless. I cannot. I cannot seem to achieve the life that I know I want, the know that I was born for, on my own. God is. You have to help me. I turn to God. What if that is true? Jesus tells us he came to give us abundant life, his life. And this, again, is a very different kind of life than the lives we manufacture on our own. And we know this is true. We know it here. This is true. Here, too, I've had some hesitation this morning in, in sharing, a, sharing a quotation from a good friend. When I had a conversation this past week with a good friend. He's uh, been a friend for a number of years, years, um, here. Uh, he's been a parish leader here, and uh, I don't think when he said this he thought I would quote him in a sermon, but I'm going to. He said to me, and I quote, We define ourselves by what we do, the things we have, and the way people look at us. And then he said, that can be a combustible mix, end quote. And Moses says something like that. Just stop it, y'all, stop it. Watch what the Lord will do. The Lord will fight for you. You are only to keep still. That is to say, you are only to remain where you are, lay down your arms, and turn to God. But then there's a second thing that I want you to notice, and it may not seem to connect to the first thing, stand still and watch what God's about to do. Yes, but once you have that trust, that faith, that God has power to do it, indeed in Christ he has done it for you already, then Moses uses God's word to say, take a step. God says to Moses, I have parted the waters. I have made a way. You didn't do it. I did it. Tell the people, Moses, to move out, to go forward. Just take that first step into the Red Sea. I know it looks crazy. You're wondering how long are these waters going to be parted? Just take a step. Tell them to go. What does that look like? Well, at the most basic and important theological level, level. Exodus power is freedom from the slavery of sin and death. And Christians have got to have that at the base of everything we understand about reality. But what about other practical ways we live that out? Freedom to take those steps. What was that look like? So again, i rephrase it. How powerful could it be? If someone in a social environment like this says, "I have worked so hard to get where I am, and of course there have been ups and downs, but here I am and, I, and, and like Wakefield, I have the job, I have the family, I have the house, and i I, I still feel incomplete I, I feel empty at times that that someone would have the vulnerable Uh, a courage to confess that. And this is where the power is. They have a friend in Christ to whom they can say that, and they know they can say that, and the friend says, me too. I I think I know what you're talking about. Let me tell you how my life is kind of like that as well. And then the two of them, or three, wherever they are gathered in Jesus' name, find a kind of exodus power to say, let's help each other. Or let's figure out where we can get help. Let's let's, let's learn this business of walking through the parted waters together in Scripture and prayer and worship and life together as Christians. And this is where we find our true identity. And that actually blesses all the other stuff even more. That's where you will find Exodus power, especially in a community like this. So my exhortation is that we would all be brave enough to stop trying so hard to do it on our own. You're never going to part the Red Sea. God will do that. And in trusting that God does it, then to take steps into the waters that he has parted for you, even if that seems scary, scary to do. This is the start of a new program year. It's not at all the program year we envisioned, um, you know, six months ago. But, um, you know, Let it not be said that you all don't have opportunities to be connecting with the Lord here in the life of St. George's. Maybe not the variety and the the, the buffet is a lot smaller right now necessarily. Um, But whether you're here in person or you don't feel comfortable being here in person, uh, we are providing those opportunities for those kinds of conversations. And I'm really proud that we are and very thankful that we are. And I want to be a part of those conversations for my own sake and my own life. Despite the miraculous, singular nature of the Exodus story in the Bible, it's, it's, it's utterly unique and it's got that utterly unique prominence. It is a story that we are asked to live out repeatedly. God's mighty hand, God's life force that we know as grace opened a path for the Israelites. It opened a tomb for the risen Jesus and it opens doors for you and for me still. The door, in fact, is always open. Even when we may remain aloof, detached, disconnected, or even cynical about it all, the door remains open. The power is there. The Exodus is both a singular event in the Bible, but in the crucified and risen Jesus' ongoing power because it reveals the ongoing character of God whose loving arms and miraculous life-giving power are never exhausted. They're always open, creating new paths, delivering God's people into lives of abundance that we too seldom ask for or imagine.